Hey everybody, thank you for joining the Grace Tabernacle Podcast. Our goal is to reach our community with God's mercy, grace, and love with every podcast. We hope it will be inspirational and uplifting in your life. God bless and enjoy the podcast. Amen. 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 God bless you for being in the house of the Lord tonight. We're going to go ahead and jump into the word of the Lord. I spoke a couple of weeks ago. We had our business meeting, obviously, last Wednesday night. But two weeks ago, uh, we spoke about God's amazing grace. Aren't you thankful for the grace of the Lord? Amen. Amen. And so I want to uh, try and conclude that thought here tonight uh, because as wonderful as it is, what grace did for us, and I spoke a couple of weeks ago about uh, the grace of God, how, how Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, lest any man can boast. And, and Paul talks about in Romans chapters uh, like 3, 4, and 5 about how we cannot work our way to salvation, how there's nothing that we can do that makes us good enough to obtain salvation on our own, but it was the free gift of God for us to obtain salvation. And so as wonderful as it is, what grace did for us, that is making a way for us to be reconciled unto God by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. What is even more amazing and what I want to talk about tonight is what grace, if it's allowed to work properly, look at your neighbor and say if it can work properly. If grace works properly, it will do something not only for us, but it will do something in us. Everybody say in us. Grace wants to do something inside of you. And so I want to begin with a passage that I ended with a couple of weeks ago, and it's found in Paul's letter to Titus, who was a, uh, a protege, if you will, uh, of Paul. And he is a, a preacher, a minister, a pastor who was tasked with uh, uh, setting up and maintaining the church on the island of Crete. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy, and he, or I'm sorry, to Titus, and he, he says this in chapter 2 and verse number 11 of the letter he wrote to Titus. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Somebody say everybody. It's appeared unto all men. But then in verse number 12, he says this, and a lot of people like to stop where he says, the grace of God has appeared to all men. That's great and wonderful. But he didn't stop there. Paul said, the grace of God hath appeared unto all men. In verse 12, he says, teaching us. Teaching us that denying. Now, I could just stop right there. And that, that would be enough, that the grace of God doesn't just come to reconcile me to himself. The grace of God doesn't just come as a free gift just simply to let me go on sinning the way that I've always sinned and to live the life that I've always lived. But Paul said the grace of God under the unction of the Holy Ghost. Don't get mad at Paul. You knew, your mama ever told you don't kill the messenger? Your daddy ever told you don't kill the messenger? You ever told somebody else don't kill the messenger? When you got bad news, that's what we start with. Don't kill the messenger. This is not bad news. This is good news. But he says the grace of God appeared to us, but it appeared to teach us to deny. To teach us to deny. And then he goes on. To deny what? To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. To teach us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now you say, well, well, 
Our world's a lot different than his world. It's okay. It's still this present world. Whatever world you're living in, you are tasked as a child of God to live soberly and righteously and godly in the present. The, the, the New King James, which is what I'm reading here, says in this present age. So whatever age it is that you're living in, whatever era that it is that you're living in, you are tasked as a child of God to live soberly, righteously, and godly. So Paul says that the grace of God will appear in everyone's life, but there is a purpose in it showing up more than just knowledge of the sacrifice that Jesus made, but grace comes to teach us to deny. Again, those words are, are revelatory. Teach in that particular passage, I've been on a kick of words lately, and it's important, I think, for us to understand wording. Teach in that particular passage does not only mean to educate. The, 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 the Spirit of God, the grace of God, does come in order to educate us about the Word of God and the things of God. Absolutely, that is part of it. But that word also has a meaning in it that is to discipline. The grace of God shows up, yes, to educate us, but it also shows us how to be disciplined in denying to uh, 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 do something that we should not be doing. And so Paul is saying the grace of God is going to educate us on how to refuse what our flesh desires to do, but also the grace of God shows up to discipline us when we don't do what we ought to do. Now that is a far cry from the picture that grace, uh, 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 the picture of grace, I should say, that is taught by the large majority of religion that, that we have in our world today. And so I believe it is important for us, again, to understand what grace should be doing in our lives. And so Paul addresses, we talked about Romans 3, 4, and 5 the last uh, two weeks ago in, in, our, in our first session on amazing grace and what grace does for us. But we're talking tonight about what grace is supposed to do in us. And so Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse number 1. And we're going to kind of go verse by verse a little bit through this chapter and see what Paul says. He says this in, in Romans 6 and 1. What shall we say then? Again, he's just talked about how that we cannot work our way into salvation, how that grace is a free gift from God and how God uh, uh, paid the price for us through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin. And so he says, what? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. And so Paul had introduced this idea of grace abounding over sin. We read it a couple of weeks ago where sin did abound. Grace did much more abound. And so he had, he had introduced this concept of uh, grace abounding over sin in chapter 5. And so there were those in Paul's day that were now floating the idea that in order for grace to continue to abound, then we, we must be supposed to continue to go on out there and sin so that grace can continue to be applied in our lives. But the important thing for us to understand is that the verb continue in that verse, shall we continue in sin, that, that, that is an, an active 
tense, present tense verb. And so it is clear that Paul is talking about a practice of continuing to live in sin after you have been born again. He's saying, should we continue to habitually sin over and over and over again so that grace can continue to abound in our lives? And Paul automatically, immediately, and passionately refutes that notion in the following verse, verse number 2 of chapter 6. He says, in the King James Version, he says, God forbid. In the New King James and most other translations, he says, certainly not. Certainly not. You should not continue to sin. But then he explains why he says, certainly not. He says, how shall we who died to sin, how shall we that died to sin going to live any longer in it. Paul is clear here that the design of God is for the born again believer to be dead. Somebody say dead. To be dead to sin. Now Paul talks in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 how that before Jesus Christ came we were dead in sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sin and that, that Christ came and gave his life for us even before we knew anything about how to respond or without any guarantee that we would respond. And so he talks about us being dead in sin, but now Paul is turning the coin over and he's saying you are no longer dead in sin, but now that you've been born again, you should be dead to sin. Sin should no longer be the norm in your life. Sin should, should actually be something that is foreign to you. The idea is that our relationship to sin has changed. Where it used to be before we were born again, our nature to sin. I said a few weeks ago, you don't have to teach a child how to do wrong things. They're immediately going to have it in their nature to do wrong things. You might be great parents and you might try to teach them not to lie and not to steal and not to cheat and not to cuss and not to do all these things. But eventually their nature is going to well up inside of them and they're going to do wrong things because it is in their nature to do so. Not because you put it there. But because Adam sinned in the garden, we have a nature inside of us that is bent toward sin. And so where it used to be our nature to sin, when we are born again, we are supposed to be dead to sin. It should be, again, foreign to a believer. And so a born-again believer living in sin would be like you showing up. Sister Amy is a realtor. It may be like you putting your house on the market and asking Amy to sell it and her selling your property and you moving somewhere else and then a week or two after you move into your new house, you go back to your old house and you crawl in the bed with the person that moved into it and be like, hey, is this okay? That's the picture that Paul is trying to paint here. He said, you don't live there anymore. That is not your nature anymore. It should not be natural to you to sin as a believer, as a born-again believer. If you've repented, if you've gone down in the waters of baptism and the blood has been applied and you've been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, you've got everything you need to live above the sin that your old nature says that was a part of you. You don't live there anymore. And so no, no matter how long that home that you sold used to be yours, you say, well, I lived there for 30 years. I ought to be able to go crawl in the bed or open the refrigerator and get something out of it. Well, you don't live there anymore. It's not yours. 
You, you sold it and you gave it away to someone else. Paul said, you are not your own because you have been bought with a price. When you are born again, you sold yourself to Jesus Christ. And you don't live in sin anymore. Your address has changed and so it doesn't fit you anymore. I think of the little old nursery rhyme about Goldilocks and the three bears. She got the bed that was too small and the bed that was too big and then she found the one that was just right. Your new man that you become in Christ Jesus, your old man was too small and it was too big for you. But when you get that new man in Jesus Christ, it fits just right. You don't live in those other places anymore. And so Paul explains how this process works. He starts to talk about it in verse number 3. You can follow along with me on the board. You can read it in your Bible. This is what he says in verse 3 of Romans 6. He says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, here's our word, so because he died, because he gave his life, because he shed his blood, and because now you have been born again, therefore we were buried with him through, somebody say through, that word means in, you were buried with him in baptism into his death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, and this is important that you understand, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, and here's the purpose, that the body of sin might be done away with. Now that don't sound like anything that's supposed to stick around to me. He said that the body of sin, the reason you were buried in baptism, the reason that you joined Christ in his death is so that you can rise again into newness of life. But the other reason that you joined him in death is so that the body of your sin might be destroyed or done away with that we should no longer, man that's pretty plain language right there, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Why? Because he who has died has been freed from sin. The spiritual death, repentance, the spiritual burial, baptism in Jesus' name, those are essential to you becoming the new man, the new woman that Jesus Christ desires for you to be. If you are going to experience the life that is intended to come after. Again, he said it. We were buried with him that we might like him rise into newness of life. If you are going to experience the new life that Christ wants you to experience, the death and the burial are essential tenets in order for that to happen in your life. But Paul's point is clear. In that death, in that burial, something life-changing happens in the process of that spiritual burial. And Jesus gives us the answer. It's in John chapter 12 and verse number 24. This is what Jesus said. I'm reading the New Living Translation of the Bible. Listen to what he says. He says, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil, 
and it dies. It's not just enough for that, that kernel of soil to be thrown in the ground and for you to put a little dirt over it and then for you to go back an hour later and pick it back up. What happens if you do that? Nothing. Come on, Brother Jason can tell me tonight. If you put that corn in the ground and you go back and pick it up an hour later, it ain't going to die and it ain't going to produce anything. You have to leave it in the ground and you have to let it die to its original state so that it can become something else. But watch this. He says, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But watch this. But its death, you got to get this, its death will produce. It goes on to say many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. But, but that's enough right there. Death produces something. Jesus is clear, and Paul is clear in his letter to the Romans. It is death that produces life. If you don't die, you don't get life. Now, I'm not talking physically. I'm talking in a spiritual sense. If your old man does not go through the process of death and burial, then you do not rise into newness of life. But if you will somehow find a way to let death happen in your life, if there is a spiritual death of your old man, life is expected to be the result, not more death. He says at the end of this chapter, and we'll get there, the wages of sin is death. So if life is intended to be the result of death, then we are not supposed to continue in the pattern of death that we were in. Death doesn't produce death. Death produces life, according to the Word of God. Now, we're talking in a spiritual sense here. Death produces life. The death of Christ produced the ability for me to be reconciled unto God. And my death produces a spiritual life if I follow the plan that's laid out in the Word of God. It produces a spiritual life for me. And so Paul reiterates this thought in verse 11. It's leading into his instructions on how we are to fulfill God's plan for the believer's life. But this is what he says in verse number 11 of Romans chapter 6. He says, likewise, you also, you, somebody say me, you, he says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, that word reckon, I, I've said this I think a couple of weeks ago in that lesson, or maybe it was in a, in a message a few weeks ago, whatever it was, but that, that word reckon in the New Testament Greek, it's an accounting word. Paul is saying that when you are buried with Christ, you should account or you should consider your old man to be dead. You shouldn't even think about your old man being alive anymore. Your consideration should be he or she is dead. That old person that I used to be is dead. We account our old man as being dead. And so the remainder of this portion of chapter 6 is Paul's instructions on how this looks in the daily life of a believer. Verse number 12, this is important that we, that we stop and kind of break this down slowly because sometimes we can go through and we're like, okay, uh, Romans chapter 6 is my reading for today and I just read down through it. And we read it, but we don't really get it. I want you to listen to what Paul says in verse 12 of Romans 6 here, verse 12 and 13. He says, let not... 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Verse 13, he says, Neither yield. Y'all see that? Let not, neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. This is important. Through the process of the new birth, repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, being filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, we are actually given power through the Holy Ghost, not our own selves, Brother Shad's favorite verse, not by might, not by power, by spirit, okay? It's not us, it's not you, it's not like you've become some superhuman. You're you, but with the power of the Holy Ghost. And so through the power of the Holy Ghost, we've been given the authority and the power to not allow sin to have authority in our lives. That is plain as day what Paul is saying right there. He says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. That tells me it's my decision of whether I want to sin or not. Well, preacher, I've just battled this for so long I can't help it anymore. Oh, yes, you can. If you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, you can. Now, you may not. You may give in and you may walk back to that because your flesh is weak and you, and you really somewhere down deep inside, you want to do that still. And if, you, if that's the case, you've got to get to an altar and you've got to crucify that flesh and you've got to give it to God until you can truly say, I don't want to do this anymore. You want to know about that? Go ask Brother Shad. He'll tell you. He's told me his testimony before about his chewing. What did God say to you? I will never take anything from you that you want to do, right? I will never deliver you from something that you love. Right there. And so God's Spirit is present with us to enable us to overcome whatever it is that we are battling in our lives. But we got to get this stuff under control first. We got to say, no, my, my pastor brother didn't you say, you got to grab yourself by the nap of the neck and say, oh no, you're not. <laughs> Anybody ever had to grab yourself by the nap of the neck? Anybody had to put your mind over your mouth before because you say something you shouldn't? Amen. All right. So we're given power to not allow sin to have authority in our lives. Paul's clear that we have the responsibility as a believer to be in control of our own vessel. I have the control. And I either give it to the devil or keep it myself, which is the same thing, or I give it to Jesus. And I say, here you go, Lord. I'm going to let the Holy Ghost move through me and I'm going to allow the Holy Ghost to enable me to say no to those things that are the desires of my flesh. Again, not by our power, but by the power of the Spirit. But here's something you have to understand as well because there are people out there, especially looking at Pentecostals, apostolics, we are not unconscious agents of the Spirit. Let me paint a picture for you. I know that looks silly. The Holy Ghost is not pulling me around somewhere I don't want to go. Are you with me? 
We are not unconscious in the decisions that we are making. In fact, we are in total control of the decisions that we are making when we yield to the power of the Spirit and say, okay, God, I'm going to follow your leading in this area of my life. It is a conscious effort on the part of the believer to get up in the morning and tell yourself, I am going to follow the Spirit, not the flesh. I have counseled many, many, many people over the years that have said, Pastor, I can't get over this. I can't get, how do you beat this? How do you get it? And I tell them, every single one, you get up in the morning and say, Jesus, I'm yielding myself to you. I want you to help me to be able to control these things that you know are weaknesses in my life. And when you lay your head on that pillow at night and you've not followed into that, that place of your flesh, you say, thank you, Jesus, for one day that I haven't stepped in it all day long. And then you go to sleep and you get up the next morning and you say, Jesus, I need your help today because you know my flesh is weak and when he's done it for another day you lay your head down and say thank you Jesus that I did not fall in it or step in it or trip or do anything else in regard to that again today and you just do that over and over and over again day after day until you look back and it's been six months or a year or five years or ten years and you have gotten authority over whatever it is that is a weakness in your life because day by day you said no to whatever the sin was that you were weak in it's one day at a time The picture that Paul paints is beautiful. He says, don't yield your members as instruments. That word instruments means weapons in the Greek. He says, don't, don't yield your members as weapons of unrighteousness. What does that mean? He's talking about your eyes. Don't give your eyes to the devil to be a weapon of unrighteousness against your own life. Don't use your ears or your mouth or your hands or your feet. Don't yield those members of your body to the devil, to unrighteousness, to, to be weapons against your own soul to somehow make you be lost. When you give in to sin in your flesh, it has become a weapon against the new man that Christ has created in you. Notice. I didn't say when your, your, your spouse or your children or your parents. I said when you yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness, they become weapons against the new man that Christ is trying to create in you. Let me give you an example. When David was a young man, his hands were a weapon for righteousness when he put a, a smooth stone in a sling and he said, you come to me with sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he threw that rock and, and it hit Goliath in the forehead and he went and chopped his head off. His hands were yielded to God as a weapon of righteousness in that moment. But about 10 or 15 years later, his eyes became a weapon of unrighteousness when kings were going out to battle, but instead David was sitting on a rooftop and he was looking at something that he should not have been looking at. His eyes became a weapon against the man that, cried, that God was trying to create inside of him, against the king that he was supposed to be, the righteous king that he was supposed to be. His eyes became a weapon against what God can do. That's how we can yield our different members either for righteousness or unrighteousness. So those, those, those members of our body, hands, feet, eyes, ears, mouth, they can be weapons against us. But at the same time, when you do yield yourself to God, your members as instruments of righteousness, 
then you do harm to what Satan is trying to do in your life and in the world that surrounds you. You become a weapon against the kingdom of hell. So verse 14, Paul speaks from the vantage point of the one who is yielded to righteousness. I, I, I love this in Romans six fourteen, He's talking to someone who, again, is, is living and walking a righteous path. And he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. That is a prophetic word of promise to someone who is living a righteous life. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under the law. You're under grace. That word dominion is to have authority or power over something. When God created Adam in the garden, he was given dominion over everything in the earth. God said that. He said, I'm giving you dominion over everything that's in the earth, over the, the, the birds of the air, the fowls uh, that, are, that are flying, the fish in the sea, the animals, the trees. You've got dominion over everything. That's what God told Adam. Rule it. But then Adam sinned in the garden. And when Adam sinned in the garden, he forfeited his dominion into the hands of the enemy. Adam no longer had dominion over the earth. That's biblical. He forfeited that dominion. But when Jesus came as that second Adam and he died on the cross, when we are buried with him in that baptism of death, we regain that dominion that he said we could have. It comes back to us again. And so we once again in that moment have the authority to say no to sin. To put it in its place in our lives. I've said this many, many times over. I don't care who you are. I don't care how strong-willed you are. Without the power of the Holy Ghost, you will never be able to say no to sin forever. You might say it for a day or a week or a month or a year. You might be super strong and go sit in some monastery somewhere by yourself for five years and, 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 and you know, maybe you don't act on any sin. I bet you'll have a bad thought or so in there, probably. But you won't ever be able to say no to sin. But if by some strange chance you could say no and you could never commit a wrong act, you still have a nature that has to be redeemed. Now, I don't, I don't believe that that would ever be possible in yourself, truthfully. But the good news is, through the power of the Holy Ghost, you have that ability. And so in verse 15, Paul, he poses another question. He began the chapter asking, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? So he says this in verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not, or God forbid. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? The grammatical layout of this passage is important. Again, in verse 1, Paul asks the question, Shall we continue in sin so that grace can abound. I told you that the, the verb there, continue, is a present tense.
tense verb, of a, an active lifestyle of habitual sin. He's talking about a lifestyle of sin there, and he says, certainly not. But here, in this passage, when he says, what then shall we sin, because we're not under the law, the verb tense suggests that he's not talking here about continual sin. He's already addressed that in verse number one. Here he's talking about just an occasional sin. Should, should we sin here and there so that grace still has the opportunity to work in our lives? And again, the response emphatically is certainly not. And the reasoning is simple. He says, Whoever you yield yourself to, this is the reason why. Because a momentary sin is not just a momentary sin. But you're opening yourself up to getting yourself back to that habitual lifestyle of sin again. How many found it to be true that once you do it once, it's so easy to go back and do it again? You say, well, Pastor, I hadn't had this problem for a year or two. But once you do it once, man, it brings all that back. And it's just like, man, it's just boom, 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 boom. Never leaves you alone. It's right there on top of you all the time. So he says, whoever you yield yourself to, again, hear what he says. It's not just a one-off. A one well, I can just do it and move on. He says, no, whoever you yield yourself to, you become a slave of that. <laughs> For good or evil, for righteousness or unrighteousness. Whatever you yield yourself to, you become a slave of whatever that is. And so Paul then concludes this chapter by reinforcing the path that brought us to where we are in Christ. In verse number 17, he says this, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, again, here we are, Action on the part of the believer. He says, though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed, you obeyed. That is an active word in your life. Obedience is a, an action word, that you did something. You obeyed. Again, the something that you're doing is not gaining you salvation. The something that you are doing is identifying yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He did it. You're just participating. I said, he did it. We're just participating. We're taking it on to our lives. We are accepting it. Paul in one verse said that we are to put on Christ. I read that verse today in my, in my devotions. Let me see if I can find it. It's not even in my notes. This is free. I think it's in chapter 14. Chapter 13. Verse 12, chapter 13. He says, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore, watch this, cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. I never noticed. I mean, I noticed it. I read it. I, I saw it. I, all that stuff. But this morning when I was reading that, the Lord prompted my mind. You cannot put on until you first cast off. Somebody hear the preacher tonight. If you're trying to put on Jesus before you've ever casted off your life of sin, it's never going to work. If you're trying to put Jesus on top of your unrighteousness, it will never work. He said you have to cast off the works of darkness and then you can put on the armor of light. You have to cast off before you put on. 
So here we are again. He said, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which you were delivered. And having been, having been, past tense, set free from sin, you became. That's another action word. You did something. You became. It's the Spirit of God working through you to do it. It's not you doing it on your own. It's you yielding to God and allowing Him to work through you. But, it, but He said you became something. Slaves of righteousness. So here it is again. It's our action toward God. In response to the grace that He has showed us, you obeyed the doctrine that was preached. You became slaves of righteousness. We would do ourselves good to get that mindset that God is my master. We don't like to use that word. That implies, I gotta, I gotta listen to what somebody says. I got I got a boss. I gotta. That's not a. That's not really a popular term. But if we look at it that way, then we're going to have a whole lot easier time living for the Lord if we look at it like, okay, God, whatever you say is what I'm going to do. Good, bad, or indifferent. You're my boss. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. I love that verse when Thomas told the disciples, they said, hey, we've seen Jesus. He said, I ain't going to believe you. I wasn't there. I was gypped. Unless I can put my hands, my, my, my fingers in the nail prints in his hands and stick my, my fist in his side, I'm never going to believe it. And when Jesus showed up, he said, Blessed are those who see and, and haven't seen and believed and greater blessing. I don't have in my, in my, in my notes. But the, what I want to get to is once Thomas experienced that, his response was, My Lord and my God. He recognized the deity of Jesus Christ and said, Look, I'm sorry that I, that I, was, that I didn't have enough faith to believe, but now that I have seen, you're in charge, buddy. <laughs> Whatever you say, I'm going to do it. That's when he says, talking about the present day church where we live, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. They're even more blessed. But we will see someday. Amen. The benefits Jesus offers are so much greater than what we will receive by serving ourselves which is really serving the kingdom of Satan. And so Paul continues restating a point that he's already made earlier. That is that the choice is ours where we yield our members. Verse 19, he says, I speak in human terms, talking about slavery, when he's, when he's talking about being a slave to God, slaves of righteousness. He says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness unto holiness. That's a powerful term right there. He says you, you yielded your members as servants of unrighteousness that led to more unrighteousness and lawlessness that led to more lawlessness. In other words, you get what you do he says, now, yield your, your, your members, yield yourself as a servant to righteousness, and when you do, it's going to take you to holiness. That word holiness means set apart, consecrated to God, 
There's going to be something different about you than there is about everybody else out there that don't know who Jesus is. It's going to make an impact in your life when you yield yourself to God as a servant of righteousness. It sounds very elementary, but the, the truth is, whatever you practice is going to be more prevalent in your life. Whether you practice sin or you practice righteousness, it's going to be, it produces what it is. We've used the example many times of the seed in the field. Seed in, in the field produces itself. It doesn't produce something else. We go out and plant corn, we're not going to get soybeans. It produces itself. And so sometimes we, we look at our lives and we have the, the, the benefits. Benefits is not the right word for sin necessarily, but it's the wages. We have the, 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 the results of the way that we've lived and we turn around and like, how did this happen? Well, it happened because that's the way you lived. We're not going to be able to stand before God and hide who we were. Because it's, it's going to be evident who we were because it produces itself. Sin produces sin. Righteousness produces righteousness. That's the way it is over and over. The longer you ingrain an action into your life, the tougher it's going to be to break that cycle. I remember growing up, and uh, when I first got my license, nobody wore seatbelts. We just didn't. Um, and a, a, a friend of mine, um, he, was, he was a little older than me. He was my sister's age. <clears throat> and he was killed in a car accident. And m my parents really got on us that you need to wear your seatbelt. You need to make sure you're buckled up. And I remember hearing, reading somewhere that if you do something seven times or ten times or whatever it is, it becomes a habit in your life. And so I had an old Nissan pickup truck with a five-speed brother, Jason, that I could get those wheels real good going, you know. And didn't have a tailgate on it, so I couldn't put anything in the back. It all slide out. But, yeah. <laughs> and so I remember going out to my truck, and that thought was in my mind that I got in grand. And so I went one, click, two, click, three, click, four. Like ten times trying to remind myself i got to wear my seatbelt. And now it's just common nature to put, get in and put my seatbelt on. Um, but those act, it's just a very elementary thing that you look at and say, well, nah, that's a, but, but it happens even with, with living your life. If you get up and, and for a week or two at a time and you say, I'm going to get up at whatever time, 7, 8 o'clock in the morning, and I'm going to pray for 30 minutes. And you get up and do that. Two weeks later, your mind's going to start clicking and it's just going to be part of your routine and what you do. For too long, you won't even have to set your alarm because you'll just wake up to do it. It'll be like second nature to you. It's the same whether you're talking about unrighteousness or righteousness. Whatever you practice becomes more prevalent in your life. And the longer you ingrain that cycle into your life, the tougher it is to break the cycle. So Paul ends this discourse in chapter 6 with a final plea toward righteousness. By making clear, again, the, the, the rewards received by both. And again, re reward is probably not a great word for sin, but it is what it is. Verse 22, he says, But now having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit unto holiness 
And the end is everlasting life. And that paints a pretty picture. Having died out to sin, having let go of the, the, the evil and the, and the unrighteousness, and again, I know evil is kind of a tough word for, for just, you know, what, what most people would say, well, that's just life. But in the eyes of God, it's evil. I can't, I can't relabel good to what I want it to be. It's just, it's good versus evil. It's God's determination, not my own. And so I have to go according to the Word of God. And he says, if you are righteous, you have your fruit. Everybody's life is going to bear fruit. You have your fruit unto holiness, that separated, consecrated life to God. And in the end, you're going to receive eternal life or everlasting life. But, verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life, but... And we, we, we harp a lot on the gift of God, and I preach a lot on the gift of God, but the truth still remains that the wages of sin is death. And I would be doing a disservice if I didn't, from time to time, bring up the wages of sin is death. Thank God that we can obey the, the gospel and we can change our future and we can have everlasting eternal life. Thank God for that. But the wages of sin is still death. I love what Paul said early in this text. He said, death produces death produces something if it's the death of sin it's going to produce more death both physically and spiritually you will you will sin will kill you physically it, it is it is it is just absolutely stunning to me that people can look at things that will literally kill you physically and not understand the reason God wants to pull you away from all that. Why does, why does God care if I drink or smoke or do drugs? or do, That stuff will literally kill you physically. And that sin will kill you spiritually. The wages of sin is death. But Paul says, if we will die with Christ through the application of of the new birth. If you will repent of your sins, you will be baptized in Jesus' name. You will be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the only time that death produces something other than death. When it deals with sin, death produces death. Stand with me tonight. When it deals with sin, death produces death. But somehow God, God turns the reality around when we're talking about new birth. And he says, if you will die to sin, that will actually produce the opposite of death. Death produces life in your life. It's amazing grace. It's amazing grace. We, we, we sing that song over and over and over again. And, and sometimes I think we don't think about the fact that it truly is amazing grace that God gives us. Would you pray with me tonight? God, I thank you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you, God, that when, when I did not deserve it, 
Lord, when I was living in sin, when I was doing things that I knew were wrong, God, things that I should not be engaged in, Lord, that you saw the, 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 the desire that I had within me. You saw the tenderness in my heart towards you, God, and you showed me grace, and you showed me mercy, and you, you, you turned your, your good th thoughts upon me, God. You had greater things in store, and you gave a space of time to repent, God. And when, when I gave my life to you, God, and I began to live in, in the truth, of what you called me to, God, that you transformed my life and you turned that death into life, God. You turned it into a calling of God upon my life, Jesus. And, and you desire to do that for every single individual that's sitting in this building. You have a purpose for us, God. And it's not just simply to be born again and to sit on a pew, but your purpose is so much greater for us, God, than anything that we can imagine. And so I pray. Right now, I pray, God, that you would help us to understand that your grace is amazing, that you desire to do good things for us and to pull us into a new relationship with you, God. And we're going to thank you and give you praise for it. And we ask it in Jesus' name.